Welcome to This Week in Bitcoin and Policy, an unfiltered take on what's happening on the Hill with Bitcoin and policy. Today's guest, Troy Cross, professor of philosophy at Reed College and fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute. And here's your host, Rod, at BitKite on Twitter. Welcome back to This Week in Bitcoin and Policy, episode number five. I'm your host, Rod, and I go by the handle BitKite on Twitter. This week, I'm joined by Troy Cross, professor of philosophy at Reed College and a fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, specializing in Bitcoin mining. So since Troy's on with us today, we're going to focus on mining and specifically around policy. Troy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rod. It's nice to be here. Absolutely, man. You've been on a number of podcasts and, uh, you know, spreading the Satoshi's gospel across the board. Actually, you had your even your own podcast. You had a couple episodes and you just uh, decided to hang it up. Well, it wasn't really a podcast. It was always a non-pod, you know, it was just some conversations I wanted to share. Yeah. And in fact, I've had some more of those conversations and they're in the can and I just need to edit them. So that series is not done and it will be hosted on the Bitcoin Policy Institute's website. So not not done entirely. Oh, amazing. Amazing. I actually, uh, I listened to now our mutual friend Justin Orkney's uh, episode, which was really cool. And then the, the one with Nathaniel Harmon. Actually, I'm going to go to that uh, podcast recording because to kick this off, you got into Bitcoin, I want to say in 2013. And one of your students, you were so hardcore uh, uh, into Bitcoin that one of your students actually wrote either a blog post or a Facebook post saying, Troy Cross won't shut up about Bitcoin <laughs> in 2013. I mean, I wish I was friends with you in 2013 so you could be the one just pushing me. Yeah, it was actually, uh, it was 2011 when I, when I, it was 2011 when I got into Bitcoin, but that, that Facebook post was from 2013. That's when I sort of came out with my students uh, and faculty colleagues as a Bitcoiner was 2013. God bless you, Troy. So, so how did, and okay, 2011, now I'm going to let Tom, we got to check our notes now, 2011. How did you get into Bitcoin? And while you're telling that story, maybe you can also share with our audience briefly uh, what you do at Reed College as well. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a philosopher and I also teach in the humanities program. I teach courses in metaphysics and epistemology not really directly related to Bitcoin, but I am also just a curious person. And in 2011, I discovered Bitcoin. My then girlfriend, now my wife, knew I would like this idea when she saw it in an article. She shared it with me. Uh, I found the white paper, Satoshi white paper within the day. I think I was mining by that evening. I had downloaded the software and was mining on my CPUs. And not too long after that, started mining on GPUs. Um, and uh, yeah, mostly it was fascinating as an idea about a fair and just way to, to run money itself. And uh, my, my, a lot of my students at previous institutions where I taught uh, went to work for banks. And that was in the lead up to the 2008 financial collapse. When the financial collapse happened, I did a ton of reading about the system that I saw my students uh, going to work for. And I came to think it was just fundamentally broken and unjust. 
and was looking for alternatives, something like Bitcoin. Um, I looked at like e-gold and various other things. So when I found Bitcoin, it was like, here's something that's decentralized enough that it might actually work as a fair way to store and transfer value. And it might disintermediate mm -hmm. or control the abuse of money, which is what I saw in the existing system. So yeah, I saw it as a kind of, I didn't think it would work. I thought it was a protest vote and a ray of hope in, in constructing a fairer way for human beings to coordinate social activity. And yeah, when I, I went deep into the Bitcoin talk forums, which was really the only source of information at, in 2011. And there weren't like a whole bunch of uh, publications and podcasts and there was YouTube channels. There was none of that. It was Bitcoin talk forum, which was uh, really fun yeah. and high signal. That's how I got into it. That's awesome. So, okay. So, uh, let me, I'm going to back up just a little bit We're, It's for today's 30 to 60 minute convo. We could go a number of different ways because you're pretty, pretty uh, well-versed on a number of different topics. I want to focus on Bitcoin and as it relates to policy. Um, and also, I think it was on the Nathaniel podcast or maybe another one where uh, I want to shed light and, and talk about where we are today and the not so good and then maybe end up on that ray of hope, if you will, and where we could possibly be going. One thing that's stuck out to me was the information gathering uh, process, starting with academia, and then going into how that could potentially inform not only the general population, but most importantly, the policymaking process. Um, and it was a pretty terrible feedback loop. And maybe you can shed a little light on this because you brought this up, which was academia research is more of like a filtering process into the popular press. And then from the popular press, you can make potentially policy decisions. And we were joking off air that, you know, a number of folks in on the Hill, I'm just generalizing here, um, may just read headlines and then that'll inform them to potentially make decisions. I don't know if you'd like to share some thoughts on that. Yeah, well, I was uh, not public as a Bitcoiner, apart from, you know, my talk to my students and colleagues about it. And it was partly what you're talking about right now the failures of information um, that led me to come come out and, you know, join the Bitcoin Policy Institute, start up a Twitter account and all of that. Because uh, as someone who's thought about mining for a long time and seen it grow from the inside, and also as an environmentalist, uh, somebody who's been, been active in different environmental camp campaigns and has donated to these groups, who's been outspoken about it, what I was seeing about Bitcoin from the inside was radically different from the way it's being perceived in the media, in academia and, and on the Hill. And I felt a need to step into this space because of that. Um, it, my academic specialty, I said, is philosophy and metaphysics and epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. And there's private epistemology, which is a study of how an individual knower comes to know things. But it's also social epistemology, which is how we know things you know, as a group, as a species. And science is our best way of gathering knowledge as a species. You know, it's an institution, a social institution, and a set of practices that guards against falsehood as much as humans can. Of course, science itself is riddled with problems. But like democracy, it's like the best thing we got going, even though it is flawed. 
And I see in the information flow and misinformation flow in Bitcoin, I see a terrible danger to the institution of science itself. Um, uh, we have a crisis of epistemic authority. I don't think anybody is surprised by that. People are mm -hmm. not very trusting of, uh, of, of scientific authority. They're doubting it for various reasons. And this particular episode to me is like a tragedy of epistemic authority and the credibility of science itself. So if I can tell, can I back up and tell a little story about how science gets corroded here? Yes, please. So it starts, it starts with a Dutch central bank employee and a blogger, Alex DeVries, comes up with a website. First, he's Doge economist, later becomes Digi economist. Uh, he has a master's degree in data science now, uh, but he is very often just cited as a Paris-based economist or just as an economist or as a scholar. And he's cited by all of the major media outlets around the world, The Guardian, uh, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, every, everyone, uh, The Economist. Mm -hmm. He's very often the only expert cited. Uh, he's given uh, places in, in, in NPR interviews, podcast interviews, and so on. And uh, he he uh, made it his sort of personal campaign to show that Bitcoin was destroying the environment. Uh, he has a website that's pretty fancy, Digit Economist, and um, makes a lot of wild claims there. Those claims filtered through the media, through the New York Times and so on, and eventually found their way to a small research group at the University of Hawaii, research group of undergraduates in a junior-level seminar on methodology, Yep. Um, who decided to write a paper on Bitcoin's warming potential and its emissions. They started with digit economist Alex DeVries and his particular one of his statistics on how much energy Bitcoin uses per transaction, which is a baseless statistic. Bitcoin doesn't use energy per transaction. It uses a set amount of energy that secures the whole network that provides a settlement base for payment systems that can scale basically with marginal addition to energy usage. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they take that one terrible stat. They build a terrible model around it by asking what would happen if you took Bitcoin's energy use per transaction and you scaled it up at an adoption curve like the cell phone so that in short order, in within a decade or more than a little more than a decade, virtually every transaction in the entire world is happening on chain, on the base chain of Bitcoin and using the same amount of energy per transaction as Bitcoin uses right now. And that their conclusion was, if you did that scaling, that Bitcoin would use so much energy uh, that at the typical rates of carbon intensity of energy, Bitcoin mining alone would heat the globe more than two degrees above its yeah. pre-industrial times, apart from all other human activity. And that paper got published in Nature Climate Change in 2018, right? And that headline, so we started with we started with a hobbyist, right? Then we get some group of researchers kind of hear about this hobbyist through the New York Times. Yep. And that's Camila Mora at the University of Hawaii. And we know this because one of the graduate students there at the time, Nathaniel Harmon, was a Bitcoiner and what sort of instigated it, unbeknownst to him, to him but he, he figured it out. Yep. This 
result gets published in Nature Climate Change because they don't have anybody who knows anything about Bitcoin. They would see that the model and the scaling is all absurd and bears no resemblance to reality whatsoever. And then that headline, of course, it gets it gets rebuttals in Nature Climate Change. It gets three rebuttals in 2018, and they're devastating. But the headline remains, yep. and that headline gets cited by the 70 environmental organizations who write a letter to Congress. It's the only citation in their letter regarding Bitcoin's energy use and emissions. And that letter prompts congressional hearings, which also prompt the Biden administration to issue an executive order calling on basically all branches of the executive that have any relevance to study Bitcoin and crypto and their impact on the environment, among other things, right? But that that that's how the whole chain of events go, gets started. It goes from this guy, Alex DeVries, with a master's degree, works for a central bank with no, no real academic background, yeah. not publishing anything in academia per se, nothing, some, some opinion pieces, nothing peer-reviewed. One statistic, which is catchy, catching on with Paul Krugman and others at the New York Times, filtering down to U University of Hawaii group, that filtering into a terrible paper that doesn't get peer-reviewed by anybody who knows anything gets rebutted three times, but despite that, through environmental activist organizations, makes its way into congressional letters, congressional hearings, is then cited by Elizabeth Warren, is then cited by Jared Huffman, that yep. makes its way into the policy world, right? And anybody on the inside who knows anything about Bitcoin, neither Alex DeVries' statistics nor Camilo Mora's paper would have survived a Reddit thread would not have survived a Reddit thread. It would not have survived on Twitter, yeah. but it made it through the peer review process and into the halls of Congress. And to me, this undermines everyone's faith in science broadly. It undermines everybody's faith in environmental organizations broadly, and it undermines everyone's faith in media broadly. And then it undermines everyone's faith in Congress broadly. You know, so the, the, the devastation, the aftermath isn't about Bitcoin. It is about trust. This process of misinformation is so obvious to anyone inside, anyone inside of Bitcoin who knows anything about Bitcoin can see how baseless and ridiculous these models are. Yep. It doesn't take much. But when you see that survive in, in nature, when you see it survive in the New York Times, and they, of course, these errors have been pointed out. The Bitcoin Policy Institute released a fact sheet. You know, uh, of course... Uh, we've written letters to the New York Times. We've written letters to the Guardian. None of these letters are ever printed. No one ever retracts. No one ever apologizes. Not one of those 70 organizations says, oh, we're sorry we published a bad piece of information. You know, it's not to say everything we said in the letter was wrong, but we shouldn't have published a piece of information, which is basically the, you know, it's the it's the equivalent of, of saying that, that, you know, vaccines cause autism and citing Wakefield, you know. It's yeah. utterly scientifically unacceptable. No apology ever. And that just tells you facts don't matter. It tells you that scientific rigor doesn't matter. It's a pure power struggle. And to me, as an epistemologist, a social epistemologist, that is corrosive because we live in a highly complex world. We need the institution of science to work. Yep. We need trust in those institutions. In order for that, us to have that trust, we need mea culpas. We need people to say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, <laughs> right? So that's that's where, as an epistemologist, I come in. Yeah, 
And uh, by the way, I love that you went went off right there. Uh, there's a number of clips, Tom, that we need to when we listen back. One of the things that I love, Troy, is on and a couple of the other podcasts, and even in right this here, you you call out specific people. Like we can always say, hey, here's a paper or here's a group, here's a university. But there's people behind this research or be people behind that put pen to paper and publish these articles or these quote unquote facts. Incentives matter and you nailed it. Quality information matters. But instead of being the meme of that gentleman that's like, oh, this is all so tiresome. I'm trying to figure out like, how do we you know, we do have rebuttals and there's a number of other things. And I think you hinted at it, at it, which was my answer, which was key takeaway number one in the great report you and uh, Margot put together for BPI. How do we inform and educate and maybe even convince academia um, and also the press and policymakers who are dug into their heels that Bitcoin is bad. And since they think Bitcoin is bad, there's no value at all. So any use of Bitcoin or energy, any energy that is used on Bitcoin must be wasteful. How do we help educate this group or are we just SOL? Well, I look at really instructive case studies, like for instance, nuclear power. Let's go there. Right now, the left is finally coming around on nuclear. You know, we had an anti-nuclear movement that was about safety in the power sphere, but it was also tied up with nuclear weapons. Those two issues were kind of tied up together. And what that led us to do is to lean heavily on coal and to prolong and develop the the production of coal. And we know that there's more radioactive fallout from coal. There's tremendous amounts of lung disease and shortening of life around the world from coal um, combustion. And you you can look directly back at the denuclearization efforts to blame for it. And that's counterintuitive. And the left is finally starting to get it. Like Greta Thunberg recently said, we shouldn't be decommissioning nuclear plants right now. She didn't say we should be building them. But it's a huge step to get the left to see that the anti-nuke campaign on the power front was just a mistake. Nuclear is the safest form of power we have. Mm-hmm. It's firm. It has massive capacity factor. And we can now appreciate that now that we're starting to see the problems to the grid that come with with intermittent sources. And now that we see what's happening in the energy crisis in Europe, we need all the firm power we can get because it makes us less reliant on um, on fossil and on and on international relations pipelines running from Russia. Right. So people are finally getting it. Look how long that took. What's the height of the anti-nuclear protest? What's happening in the 70s, right? Here we are 50 years later. (laughs) So misinformation can last a long time. It can be very powerful. And we see that in a nuclear case. How do we get, fix it? Well, we are early. First of all, if you look at public opinion on Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. if you are inside the beltway, you are hearing a very particular message about Bitcoin. It's coming from activists. That's what you're hearing inside the Beltway, right? You think that everybody thinks that Bitcoin is dirty and it's a threat to the environment and it's used by criminals to circumvent OFAC. If you look at what the public thinks broadly in the U.S., it is not that. Um, On the public opinion surveys I've seen, most people are undecided, largely undecided 
on issues surrounding Bitcoin and crypto. And, and so I don't think we're yet at the place we were in the late 60s and 70s with nuclear energy, where it is already hyperpolarized and the misinformation is just there. Mm -hmm. We are early on. So it's not too late to put on the brakes, think deeply and carefully about it, and not meme our way through it, but actually do good science and figure out how Bitcoin can play a role, what role it would play, which is very unintuitive, in, in an energy system going forward. You know, it can't it can play a role in a decarbonizing green energy system. Can it help us with that transition to nuclear and renewables? And that's just a, that's a real scientific process. Now, on the on the meme front, okay, I, I think I think of actually persuasion in terms of a stack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think the base layer stack is peer reviewed, credible scientific research. I don't think that ever goes away. We need more of that, and obviously, we have a problem with that right now because it is a hyper-politicized issue. Editorial boards don't want to publish anything that makes Bitcoin look good. Yep. We have a dearth of people who are qualified to do the peer review, and we don't have any kind of institutes that are fun well-funded and doing that kind of research. The only kind of research that's getting, that's getting funded is FUD, right? <laughs> so we've got a problem at the base layer of the stack. Then we have organizations like the Bitcoin Policy Institute, we try to educate and inform lawmakers, media, the populace. We try to do the best we can. What we're doing is wading in on the academic side, but we're not an institute that's just funding primary academic research. So we still need that. Then as you go up the stack, <laughs> I think we need actually a marketing effort. We need to tell the stories of how Bitcoin changes and betters people's lives. You see a lot of this for the Human Rights Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the faces of Bitcoin are not just the faces of people like me who have been into Bitcoin for a long time and study it, but the people actually using it to flee persecution, you know, to, to take wealth with them across borders. People buy, buying uh, first aid kits and helmets um, from Poland in the first days of the Ukraine invasion, right, with Bitcoin. People funding protests on the streets of Belarus with with Bitcoin, like people making ends meet when their currency is collapsing in Lebanon, in Cuba, uh, people who are escaping government repression in Nigeria. Right? Uh, these are the stories that we must tell. And that's almost at a, because ultimately, people in the US don't really need Bitcoin per se. Most, because most of us have access to banks. I shouldn't say people. I should say a subset of people. Yeah. You know, your bank account works just fine. Your money is inflating, okay, at whatever it is, 6 7% a year. But it's not a disaster, right? But it's completely different when suddenly, as when Nigeria just puts a limit on how much you can withdraw from your bank, right? And you can't have access to your money. Suddenly, that's, yeah. that's existential, right? And it, it's a lot of it's ignorance of those stories and ignorance of what Bitcoin can do. So that's kind of the top end of the stack. <laughs> we go all the way from like the base science investigation of Bitcoin's role in the decarbonizing grid. We can get into some of that. And at the other end, just basic human stories. The story recently that just came out from uh, Gridless in Kenya, yeah. you know, putting in um, a hydroelectric uh, mini grid and building out a dam and a generator and funding part of that with Bitcoin mining there which allows them the scale to build a functional 
electrical system and bring electricity to people who were cooking with kerosene and charcoal, people who did not have electricity. And then as those people develop the uh, you know electrical appliances and an economy that uses electricity, then mining will scale down and move elsewhere, right? Those kinds of stories, that's what we need. And that's that's the top end of the stack. Yeah. And, and I'll say this. I think that's when you say we need more marketing. I think the distributed marketing of Bitcoin, quote unquote, is so amazing. There's you that's out there. There's a number of other folks that are across the board. Like Gridless is a great example. It's not really, I mean, that's a company that uh, Block and others have invested in, but that's a great story. I mean, even the simple... You had a tweet. It was an analogy of the baker, like something as simple as that to bring. Maybe you can uh, opine on and and explain that one real quick, uh, because I thought it was so amazing. And it gets people just to think clearly about the benefits. And and before you do, I will say this. Uh, I've been very fortunate to travel all around the world, like especially Africa, from West Africa to Burkina Faso to Morocco and Egypt, um, down to Kenya and uh, Tanzania um, and a number of other places. So like touching the ground, meeting the people, and you can just see access to the the global financial system is an immense privilege that a lot of us who especially have not traveled the world or not like, you know, experience this, um, do t- and generally take for granted. So it's tough to relate to those stories, but here it's, it's more difficult, uh, to relate because it's, you know, in a selfish way, well, what can you do for me is, uh, what's the pain I'm experiencing. But, um, I just went on a little tangent there, but I do want to no, come I back to it. that Baker story I'm trying to find the yeah. tweet. Um, I- I've and maybe got it. shed a little light on that. I've got it. Yeah, somebody asked me if I would talk about this on this podcast, so thanks for bringing it up. But I, I, I agree entirely with your point about travel and the perspective it gives you. It still doesn't really give you the perspective because when you travel, you still don't feel those needs yourself, right? There's always going to be a gap between the people who need Bitcoin and the people who don't need Bitcoin, whether or not they even see that need. It's just different for them. But the best thing we can do is honestly, for, for people on the Hill, the best thing you can do to understand Bitcoin's value is to talk to people uh, who are using it yep. to, uh, f- for instance, finance their free press, which is critical of the government in countries that are suppressing that or financing, uh, you know, f- feminist protests against police uh, abuse and brutality, right, in Nigeria. Uh, or uh, basically, Bitcoin is a means of transferring value from one person to another person without permission, without an intermediary, without the ability to censor. And it's also a means of storing value. So it's two features are really the mirror image of of the two groups of people that need it. Yeah. Groups of people who need it are people who are being censored or gatekept or kept out of the financial system. And also uh, people whose money is being rapidly debased. And uh, if neither of those is happening to you, you won't get it. If they are, you will get it, right? Yep. And so the best thing we can do is is talk to people who who do get it about their needs. And then you're going to, like, you know, Alex Gladstein says, Check your financial privilege. It's the title of his book. And you you have to do that constantly. It, it's actually really off-putting and offensive 
when people say that Bitcoin is just a Ponzi and a, a means of gambling. Yes. And when you point out that peer-to-peer trading is most common among countries where there are you know, economic abuses, that most people are living under authoritarian regimes, that, that many people don't have access to banking, they say, yeah, but that's a small percentage of Bitcoin's value. <laughs> and, you know, it's like they're writing off the the value and worth of those people's lives and their real concerns. That's kind of disturbing, right? <laughs> no, it, it, yeah, it just shows their ignorance uh, in the fact that th- there's a term, and I don't know if it's the right way of explaining it, but the, um, their ignorance around true experience where they, on the outside looking in, it's kind of like a preference falsification. Like those that, you know, bemoan Trump publicly, but yet, privately will vote for Trump, uh, vote for Trump or, right. you know, publicly you say, I'm a re- I recycle and so on, but then take your plastics and so on because it's just too much work and you just throw it in the trash. You throw your batteries in the trash and you go on about your life. Yep. It's these same people that will say, Hey, you know, um, yeah, it's just the same. They don't want to do the proof of work. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right. I don't know if you're yeah, going to say and, something and, there, Troy. No, no, it's, uh, that's exactly right. I want to come back to the baker since I said I would talk about this. Yes. Yeah, the comparison is, okay, our story is not as memeable about Bitcoin and energy use. Why? Because Bitcoin uses energy and it uses a lot of energy. Uh, It uses about 0.13% of all primary energy right now. And it causes about 0.08% of emissions right now. And so it is an energy-intensive form of of money. And for a lot of people, they just think, ah, it uses energy, it's bad. It has emissions, it's bad. And we need something that's energy efficient, quote unquote, energy efficient. And you get, you know, more for the same amount of energy. Yep. And so that's why we're on the back foot uh, when it comes to, to the profile of Bitcoin. I think what we need to appreciate to see how Bitcoin mining actually can be a benefit to the grid, how it can be a benefit to energy energy systems, is to realize that Bitcoin doesn't just use energy. It pays for energy. Mm-hmm. And some uses of energy are harmful to the environment. Some are actually helpful. Some uses of energy will raise your electricity prices. Other uses of energy will actually lower your electrical prices, Right. Energy use per se isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, some of it's a very good thing. We we are living in an energy transition, meaning we're trying to electrify our economy, replace internal combustion engines and fossil fuel heating with electrical engines and electrical heating. And that's going to require, according to the IEA, that we triple or quadruple the amount of electrical energy we produce. And moreover, we want to make all of this new energy uh, as low carbon as possible. Yes. And right now, the cheapest forms of low carbon energy that you can throw up quickly are solar and wind. And solar and wind are highly intermittent sources of energy. And electricity travels at the speed of light through the grid. If you don't use it, it's gone. It just goes into the ground, just disappears. So our transition in energy is going to re- it's going to require a, a new relation to energy to, to electricity we, we're used to thinking of electricity as something that just like is a fixed quantity you just take some of it when it's there and if you don't take it it's still there 
But in fact, it's wildly oscillating in how much is available because it's coming from wind and solar. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And if you do use it, you pay for it. And that makes more build-out possible. So the International Energy Agency says we need to, in short order, 10x what's called flexible load. And that means that means a kind of a consumer of energy that takes it when it's there and doesn't take it when it's not there and is willing to turn down when it's not there and turn up when it is there. And it just so happens, and we need that in order to balance the grid yep. as we bring on, as we bring on, you know, all of this crazy amounts of power that's intermittent. We are going to destabilize the grid. You know, how fast we can do this is a matter of debate. And there's some energy experts think we're on a dangerous path here, bringing on so much solar and wind, we're going to destabilize the grid. Others are more you know, optimistic and ambitious about how quickly we can do it. But everybody can agree we're going to need large amounts of flexible load, 10 times as much as what we have right now in the short order, in order to make this happen. Bitcoin just so happens to be that perfectly flexible large load of electricity. Bitcoin is interruptible and attenuable, meaning it can shut down on, on command and lose very little of its profitability by shutting down because it doesn't abandon a process halfway through. So it's also portable and scalable. You can locate it wherever the grid has excess power. And then you can move it uh, to, to some other place where the grid has excess power as you add interconnection. So it's a perfect kind of like multi-tool for grid operators to soak up extra electricity at places and times where that extra exists and monetize it when it otherwise would be wasted. And that monetization can be used to build out more generation or transmission mm -hmm. sooner than we otherwise would. That's The way I illustrate this is this baker analogy where I say, imagine you run a bakery and you have a customer who agrees to buy a certain amount of baked goods every day. That's a great customer. But moreover, they're also willing to not buy if they're given, you know, some notice that they have other, that you have a busy day and lots of customers coming in, they will cut their order so that you can satisfy the other customers. And furthermore, at the end of the day, if you have leftover baked goods, they'll come in and buy those baked goods up. And because they're such a flexible buyer of baked goods, you give them a discount. You give them a good rate up front because they're willing to, you know, curtail their purchases if there's a busy day. And you give them, you know, dirt cheap prices on the leftovers at the end of the day. And just think of this from the point of view of the baker. This allows you to basically be more profitable because you have a guaranteed buyer. You can get a loan to expand your bakery because you have a guaranteed yes. buyer. But also it allows you to not waste any of that those baked goods at the end of the day, even though you're not getting a lot for them. And it allows you to handle those days when there's a big, big traffic, right? With less total, with less total production. With a certain amount of total production, you can you can cover even those busy days, a lower amount. So uh, everybody can see this kind of a customer would be amazing for a bakery, right? But now just imagine that instead of baked goods, you have you have electromagnetic waves, and those waves decay not at the end of the day over the course of a day, but they, they decay 
like moment by moment, they travel, they rot at the speed of light, you mm-hmm. know? So uh, I, I think that's the kind of consumer that Bitcoin is. It, it, a Bitcoin miner will agree to buy a certain amount of power up front uh, on a regular basis, and they'll agree to a certain amount of downtime when the grid is busy under certain price conditions. And moreover, uh, with with this is less common, but it's becoming it's becoming truer by the day. Uh, Bitcoin miners uh, with with older machines are are able to uh, take basically free, um, extremely low low price power and mine on that in cases where there is simply leftover power. Right. So so it's both a buyer of first and last resort that makes the economics of renewables work. Nailed it there. And I think even when we talk about the word Bitcoin, a lot of people meet that with fear, uncertainty, doubt, and put up their guards real quick. Yeah. Where in, if you reframe Bitcoin and don't even take you take out the word Bitcoin, you call it uh, demand response technology. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, you got demand response technology? Tell me more about this. Yeah, we're just a waste. We are a vacuum that eats up waste. Um, so for example, on... And by the way, we can segue now into, this is a good segue into the massive benefits, in my humble opinion, about Bitcoin mining. And you and Amargo eloquently wrote in your, uh, in your paper uh, for BPI, uh, one of, or there was, I think, about four or five points, but um, around utilizing Bitcoin mining's heat generation to improve energy efficiency. My favorite one is the monetization and capture of methane emissions from flared gas, basically being this waste vacuum that cleans up all this terrible, terrible uh, energy, which I think we can all agree, right? Flared gas, bad. Uh, and we're running Bitcoin miners. And here, going back to your point around those two counterpoints, where there's Bitcoin, the capital B, the monetary network, and then Bitcoin, the lowercase b, the reserve asset. Bitcoin, the capital B, the monetary network, is so amazing that 8 billion people now have access to the global financial system. So what Jack and um, those folks, Jack Mullers, were demoing down in uh, Africa, specifically, I believe it was Ghana or Accra, um, where it was showing folks transitioning dollars over Bitcoin into M-Pesa or their local currency. They were now privileged to be participants in global financial system, whether they wanted to still use their local currency or not. That's truly powerful. But the second point was with the Bitcoin, the lowercase b is preserving our future purchasing power. And so when we talk about all of these wasteful things or perceived wasteful things, Bitcoin mining is like this energy pirate. And I think you you mentioned there was maybe someone else was like the buyer of last resort and like a, like a cockroach you know, coming in and saying, we'll just keep scooping all of this wasteful stuff. So I'm, I'm really interested to see. Uh, yeah, dung, dung beetle is my preferred metaphor, but... That's right, dung beetle. Which is good too, but dung beetle is what I like. Yeah, it goes into the crevices of, of price and it finds waste. I mean, yes. think about it this way. Bitcoin mining is a perfectly competitive market. It's the closest thing we have ever seen to a perfectly competitive market. Meaning, you know, you turn energy into money at the same time rate anywhere around the world and you sell it yes. in a global market on the internet connected you know connected anywhere at at the speed at the speed of light so y- you don't have an advantage being in any particular locale except for cheap energy really and maybe cool- cooling that's available there 
So in this in this perfect market, Bitcoin mining is going to be price sensitive, extremely price sensitive. And what that means is um, uh, it's only going to find it's only going to be profitable on the cheapest electricity in the world. And the cheapest electricity in the world is, by definition, waste electricity. If there are other people who want the electricity, it's going to be more expensive. And now that wasn't necessarily true in a temporary blip in Bitcoin's history, following a 20-fold run-up in price and during an ASIC shortage and after the China ban. Yes. Given all of those circumstances, it became extremely profitable to mine Bitcoin on any price electricity in the world. And so we saw Bitcoin miners keeping coal plants from closing that were scheduled to close and that freaking a lot of people out. That's another thing that fed into the recent, you know, OSTP report, the recent congressional hearings. It was the Sierra Club's Invest in Earth Justice's investigation of those particular coal plants. What you see now is Bitcoin is mining is becoming price sensitive because those supply chains have eased, the price of Bitcoin has dropped. And the machines have moved from China, so hash rate has spiked. Mm -hmm. And now you see Bitcoin really moving into those low, low electrical prices because their margins are squeezed. And that is not coal. Coal is actually pretty expensive. Uh, almost everywhere we make electricity from coal, it's, it's an expensive source of electricity, which is why coal was folding in the first place. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it, this this low electricity price means it is really buying what the kind of electricity that no one else wants. And then you just have to ask yourself, is it good or bad that we have a buyer for electricity that no one else wants? And I think that's tremendously good. Tremendous. In part because I like solar and solar has become the cheapest new form of electricity, in part because... It, it helps to uh, you know bring people electricity who don't have it already but by by acting as a as a buyer first resort but but just generally do we want to monetize electricity the cheapest electricity in the world and if you can answer that question yes then you're going to like bitcoin mining because that's what it does yeah right but can i can i do go back to methane because you mentioned that please please okay i think that this is probably the most exciting development in Bitcoin's energy use in the recent past. We know that methane is a, is a warming gas that's much more uh, potent than CO2. It is 84 times as potent as CO2 over a 20-year period. It's, a, it's a 25 times as potent over, over a 100-year period. So uh, methane is responsible for up to one-third of all warming right now. And it's going to be responsible for more than one third. It, 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 there's more methane than we predicted. The warming due to methane is more severe than we predicted. So tackling the methane problem is really important from a climate goals perspective. And uh, Bitcoin is a unique tool in the efforts to mitigate methane emissions. Uh, because in a way, it acts like a flare stack. It it, it, it burns uh, methane, but instead of doing it in a flare, does it in an engine or in a turbine to generate electricity, which then runs miners. And engines and turbines are much more efficient at burning that gas that burns a greater percentage of it than simply lighting it on fire. But also it pays you in sats. So it pays you to do environmental cleanup. It turns a waste product into a revenue stream. Mm -hmm. 
And what's really exciting is, and I'm a lot of people are in contact with me about this, is to see uh, pilots going out there on landfills, for instance, small landfills that don't even capture their methane gas. They're funding the capture of this gas, this really potent greenhouse gas, through uh, future payouts from Bitcoin mining, right? On, and on, on as many of the landfills as we can do this on. And then I'm also getting contacted by people who want to do it on water treatment facilities and in large agricultural facilities, right? Because methane is also a byproduct of the breakdown of animal waste. So it really is dung beetleish, right? Sometimes yes. it's literal dung, right? <laughs> um, so it's not a it's not a perfect tool. It, there are, as many Bitcoiners have pointed out to me, there are complications for scaling methane-based mining. Uh, they're usually small uh, sources of energy, and that means it's very distributed and spread out, which is music to a Bitcoiner's ears. Mm -hmm. But it's not it's not at the scale of, of, of a, a riot or a marathon massive data, you know, gigawatt level data center. And, and there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, logistical supply chain and labor issues in managing a large and distributed fleet of miners, you know, at, at, at landfills and at oil sites, maintaining all that equipment, simply buying that equipment and getting it, uh, did distribute it is going to be a challenge and it remains to be seen how quickly it can scale and and also frankly how much mining of that sort bitcoin's block reward can support because there's eight and a half times as much energy simply flared into the atmosphere on oil sites simply burned and wasted yep then the entire bitcoin mining network consumes if you're really upset about wasted energy <laughs> Yeah, well, let's repeat that over and over. Yeah, I mean, we are just simply burning it. Yeah, and you can you can go to I've I've been to Houston, but I mean, I'm from Michigan, and the, we had these in Michigan because there was a little natural gas boom when I was a kid in Michigan, and uh, watching a thirty foot flame above a stack just roaring in the night, yeah, just roaring, right, and <laughs> it's. It's like I didn't know anything when I was a kid. I didn't know anything about like global warming or anything like that. But even then, looking at this tremendous amounts of energy simply, you know, being turned into heat, it was kind of like ugh. it was kind of like leaving the refrigerator door open. Yeah. But you know, twenty thousand fold, and then in, you know, in Texas, you can drive by fields of these. Right. We we this is the thing you do. You don't realize when you think about Bitcoin, if you're freaked out by its quote-unquote energy waste, it's securing this monetary network for billions of people. Drive through those oil fields and you see li literally just, just energy lit on fire, right? Yeah. And if you think, could we replace that with much more efficient burn inside an engine that does computations that allows people to transact worldwide, that basically gives people sound access to sound money, access to the banking system, and and mitigates this at the same time, that's magic. That's magic. And even if it's going to be hard for us to scale up... It, and, and brings people there. It's wonderful. Totally. It is wonderful. Um, we, are, we could go in a number of different directions now, too, and we're bumping up against time. And I hope to bring you back on, Troy, because this is, was extremely fascinating to me. So thank you again for your time. 
our, our mutual friend, uh, Harry Sudok, uh, I pinged him and I was like, hey, what's one question you would ask Troy? And uh, he, of course, Big Brain Harry comes back with a, a quick and great uh, question, which is, is fixing the money the most important thing we can do for humanity? Or is it more important us continuing down the path of um, the current climate path and fixing that? I mean, that's an easy question. I thought you were going to give me a hard one. <laughs> oh, okay, there you go. I mean, I, I think that I think that fixing the money is far more important. I mean, maybe it's less obvious to to, to listeners, but I think the two are related, and our best shot at fixing the environmental problems is fixing the money. Um, I guess I, I look at something like J.P. Morgan in the last five years has lent $382 billion to fossil fuel development. That's $382 billion in debt that was created by a single bank. And <laughs> I think the annual revenue of Bitcoin mining right now is about $5 billion. Maybe yeah. a billion of that is spent on fossil energy. Maybe, right? We're talking about uh, orders of magnitude difference here. But but what is it? It's it's actually we're borrowing from the future to fund fossil build-out and energy. And I'm not anti-fossil fuel, but per se, you know, I don't think it should all be eliminated or phased out immediately. I'm not a Malthusian. But if you look at like, that is just one instance. That's just on the energy side. We are in hock. We are in debt up to our eyeballs. And what we've done is make make money cheap, make money easy, and forced ourselves to malinvest or overconsume in the short run. And that has created uh, the, our, our you know, messed up relation with nature. Like, I don't know that JP Morgan stat would be on a Bitcoin standard if we had money that was fixed, but I think it would be a lot lower. Yep. I think we'd be a lot lower, right? And and so would our consumption across the board. So would our malinvestment across the board. Yeah, fix the money, fix the energy, I think. <laughs> I mean, the other thing, and Harry will get this too, is that these energy debates we have in Bitcoin are impossible to settle. Like, what's a better form of energy? What's really cheaper, solar or yes. natural gas or coal or, uh, or nuclear we cannot settle these disagreements because we cannot figure out how much of the, the prices that we're seeing are actually due to subsidy and or easy finance, right? Yes. There's no way to figure out actually what energy costs and what different forms of energy costs because we don't have like a frame of reference relative to which we can answer that question. It's like you just got to put a giant question mark on it, which is maybe why our debates are so interminable, right? <laughs> and it's like, fix the money and we would be able to answer those questions. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was asked this by somebody about, by uh, you know, a, a while ago who said, you're an environmentalist and you're a Bitcoiner. What if you're wrong about Bitcoin's impact? What if it doesn't turn out to be good for the environment? Bitcoin doesn't turn out to green the grid. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think then? Like, do you abandon Bitcoin or do you say, yeah, it's worth it anyway? And uh, and I said, well, I did kind of abandon Bitcoin in 2011, not per se, but I stopped mining because I was worried uh, about the scope of its impact 
And back then, my calculations on the scope of its impact were pretty extreme because we were in a block reward epoch of 50 Bitcoin per block. And I calculated, I don't remember the exact number, but some like something like that Mora article, right? Like that Bitcoin alone would cook the globe or use all, like the Newsweek said, it would use all the world's energy by 2020. Uh, so at one point, I, I put the environment above Bitcoin, and that's why I'm not rich today. <laughs> um, but if, if you know, for instance, if Digit Economist right now, even given all of his estimates, if he were right, which I don't think he's anywhere close to right, um, about Bitcoin's impact, I would be like, and, and, it, and I didn't believe any of the stuff I believe about gri- Bitcoin firming grids and yep. uh, mitigating methane and helping to finance the build out of renewables and and nuclear. Even if I believed none of that, I would think Bitcoin is still one of the best ways that one of the best things we do that produces carbon and it's worth every kilogram of carbon that is produced. <laughs> um, I, I, I think the big, amazing upshot from like what Alex DeVries and others point out when they point out how much energy Bitcoin uses, how much emissions it causes, you know, it's 0.08% of all carbon emissions. Okay. When I think about what is in that, the rest of that 99, right, 0.92%, I think there's there's no other 0.08% that stacks up to Bitcoin. Correct. It's one of the best expenditures of our our environmental budget that possibly exists. You know, I don't think that, uh, for instance, tobacco is estimated to have more than double the carbon footprint of Bitcoin by the Cambridge uh, Center for Alternative Finance. Like, I don't think tobacco is worthy, uh, more worthy than Bitcoin of its environmental footprint. I don't think cruise ships are more worthy. You know, Christmas lights aren't quite as much as Bitcoin anymore. I don't think Christmas lights are more worthy, right? Like, let's I can't, not go to Christmas lights. You know, <laughs> I can't think of a, I can't think of a better use of energy than money, than Bitcoin. That is perfectly well said. And I will say this, our time, so my time, capital, and reputation is all in on Bitcoin. And for us to have a great hour podcast, we just spent an hour just talking about the benefits uh, of Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining. And I, uh, I think that's a great way to just kind of close out this uh, uh, podcast. Uh, Troy, you mentioned your uh, Twitter. Can you, you want to leave the the audience where, where they can find you? Yeah, I'm uh, at the Tro Crow, T-H-E-T-R-O-C-R-O on Twitter. You can always find me there. And while I'm here, I've got to plug the two podcasts that I'm working on episodes. Yes. Um, for BPI. Um, one of them, I'm just going to tease them. One of them is a conversation with a founder of a company that is using Bitcoin heat, mining heat to boil water by putting the water under a vacuum and by boiling water, distills water and creates pure water. So this company is called FlowSolve is, and I, I make no guarantees that this will work. I just think it's an awesome idea. I want to see where it goes. Bitcoin mining can be used to make distilled water cheap anywhere in the world where there's water. Amazing idea. And the next conversation I'm going to have with uh, with a fellow researcher, Margot Paez, who I wrote that, who wrote that paper with me together for the White House. Um, the next show we're doing is an interview with someone who 
is using Bitcoin for carbon capture, ambient air carbon capture, uh, because Bitcoin mining needs some kind of cooling, and typically that's large fans. It turns out that fans are the running fans is the biggest cost input to carbon capture, yeah. ambient air carbon capture, blowing air through an aqueous solution. So this company is trying to integrate these two processes, Bitcoin mining and carbon capture at the same time, using the same fans to both cool miners and blow air through an aqueous solution and capture carbon distillates. Both of those interviews coming soon. Awesome. No one saw this coming, right? Like no one would have thought Bitcoin mining could be used to purify water and capture carbon out of the ambient air, reducing the cost of carbon capture by up to 90%. Uh, but it's possible that it could do those things. So I'm trying to tell those stories. I love it, Troy. And and this will be on, uh, it'll be on, we'll, we'll find it uh, through your Twitter handle and wherever, uh, whenever it gets published, we'll be sure to tweet it out and we'll include some links in our show notes. And it'll be on the Bitcoin Policy Institute website. Perfect. And we'll put that there as well. Um, Troy, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was a big time pleasure. Thank you, Rod. It was really enjoyable. Thanks for having me on. It's really nice to meet you too.